I realize tonight, as on all other occasions when I stand behind the sacred desk, I'm speaking or I am endeavoring to speak on God's behalf. Every faithful servant of God, he, he does not uh, show up merely to, to speak or to preach a message that he thinks is appropriate. He comes to deliver the Word of God. He comes to speak God's words, and that is what I have in mind here this evening. Allow me to appreciate God's servant, uh, Pastor Bertie, because of the vision that he carries, not just for the last 12 months or so, but for as long as I have known him. This remarkable man has had a very deep passion, a broken heart, and a longing for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. For as long as I know, he has been keeping fellowship with men like the late uh, Reverend uh, Ravenhill, reading his books and having sat under his ministry on occasion, I think, in years gone by, and the longing that that man of God had has ignited a similar burden <clears throat> and passion in many hearts, including my own. And so for the vision and the passion and the focus on prayer and the deep longing that has been ignited among the people of God right here in the center of the province, I think that it needs to be recognized. And each time I've come here to minister over the last many months, I have sensed a hovering. I have sensed the wind of God. I have sensed a stirring in the mulberry trees. I have sensed a spirit of expectation. And I want to encourage the people of God who are gathered here tonight. If you have such a kindling of longing and desire in your heart, you cling to it. Because God has given it to you. He has given you that longing and that hunger for something better, something big, something that only God can do. And I assure you, he will not disappoint you. Allow me to share two short readings, please. The first from Isaiah and the chapter number 64. And then we're turning to Second Chronicles, chapter 7. <clears throat> the readings are short. If you wish to follow them, feel free. <clears throat> Isaiah 64 and just the first three verses. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble in thy presence." or at thy presence. 
when thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down. The mountains flow down at thy presence. That is a very simple and a very special and a very biblical definition of revival. God coming down. The heavens being rent and God coming down. If that were to happen in this meeting tonight, there is no telling what would follow. If that were to happen in this meeting tonight, you and I would never be the same again. If that were to happen in this meeting, it would have reached Belfast, Coleraine and Dublin before you got home. You would not be home as early as you expected, but I am saying that the impact and the influence of God coming down in a meeting in the Moy or in Dungannon, it would spread like wildfire. Only it would be Holy Ghost fire. God coming down. Let's turn to an earlier chapter in the book of God, <coughs> Second Chronicles, and chapter 7. And in many of your Bibles, it has been well marked and well fingerprinted. Again, just a short passage, beginning at the verse number 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send COVID-19 among my people. It could have read like that, because COVID-19 is a pestilence. It is a demonic pandemic. If I sent pestilence among the people, and now the key verse, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And God knows 
our land? Our wee province called Northern Ireland. With all its rich and wonderful heritage in the gospel. And for many, many, many years around the world, this little island home of ours has been renowned as the strongest bastion of evangelical Protestantism in the whole of Europe. And the eyes of many and the conversation of many and the heart pulses of many have reached out in this direction. We live in an amazing part of the world with, which has had an amazing heritage. And I want you to know that if ever a country and a people, if ever a little spot of earth was under massive demonic attack, which is seeking to wipe out and to stamp into pieces and particles every portion of our heritage, if ever there was a time when such a thing was likely to happen, it's actually being attempted at the present time. And if, unless God steps in, unless God steps in, something like that is going to happen. I'm going to pray in a moment before I continue, but before I do, I want you to know that if your spiritual understanding, if your spiritual perception if your vision of God and the workings of God were just a little bit more keen than what it is you would both see and you would hear a noise in the heavens. Because there is a fierce battle raging up there. The like of which cannot be written down in a book. It cannot even be properly or intelligently imagined. But there is something going on above our heads, even as I speak to you here tonight. There's a great feeling and foreboding and expectation, and in some respects, alarm. There is so much that could either be won or lost, depending on how the church conducts itself at the present time. The battle of the ages is being fought out at this present time. <clears throat> There's no battle narrated, no battle that is recorded in the Bible, and I've been reading through uh, the, the, the books of Kings, um, during the last weeks and months, 
And some, there were some fierce battles. Some battles that had tremendous implications. Kingdoms were going to be won or lost. Crowns were going to be won or lost. And I am saying that there are kingdoms that could be won or lost, territory taken or territory gained, depending on how the church does her part. And if the blood mark of Christ is on your life, you are part of the church. If the earnest of the Spirit is in your heart, if you are a child of God, I'm talking to you. I'm talking about you. Hear me tonight. The kingdom of God is coming. There is a spiritual warfare taking place. We are all engaged in it. One of the big problems in this regard is that the majority of Christians are not aware of it. Like the disciples in Gethsemane at the most critical moment in the history of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, just as stones cast away from Calvary, the most uh, uh, strategic, the most a momentous stage and the whole program of redemption was about to be ruled out and the disciples were <laughs> forgive my impertinence that is where and that is how the church is behaving at the present time There's a large number of Christians who claim to love the Lord Jesus. They claim to be following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They claim to be redeemed by precious blood. They claim to be going to heaven when they die. And they've never been in a prayer meeting from the time that they got born again. I mean an organized prayer meeting. It was John Wesley who said, and you might think it a little bit extreme, but if ever there was a man in touch with God, if ever there was a man who had the call of God upon his life as a revivalist, if ever there was a, a burning instrument in the hands of God, John Wesley was that man. John Wesley said on one occasion that there is more religion in the devil than in the Christian or professing Christian that does not pray. Are you a praying Christian? Do you pray at home? 
with your family? Do you pray every day in secret? Do you come to the church prayer meeting? I don't know of any church in the whole of Northern Ireland or the United Kingdom that has three prayer meetings, at least three prayer meetings every week. And that has been the case for the last 12 months. I understand in this church. And if you have got a burden on your heart to go forward with God and to be a part of God's war effort against Satan and the powers of darkness, you have no excuse for the choice of days in the week to attend a prayer meeting. As a young Christian, 55 years ago, in Fermanagh, where I met with Jesus, where Jesus met with me, and I was never, never the same. I fell in love with him. And I'm still in love with him. And from the very night I prayed the sinner's prayer at half past nine of the clock, sitting three seats from the back in a little hall that is no more in Ross Lane, I got an impartation from God of the spirit of prayer. And I felt at home in every place where there was prayer that was wont to be made unto the Lord. And each week I attended three prayer meetings. And all the days in between I had prayer meetings in every field and in every corner of every field in our farm of land, in every outhouse on our farm, and in every corner of every outhouse, and in every room in our house where I lived, and in every corner of every room. It was said of Paul after he met with Jesus on the Damascus road, Behold, he prayeth. And that was, Evidence that was presented when some wondered, is this man Saul of Tarsus notorious for his persecution of the church? It was evidence presented to the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. Is this man really saved? Is this man really one of us? Does he really belong to our group? Is he still an enemy of God? That's trying to infiltrate. Behold, he prayeth. And when you see a praying man, when you find a praying woman, you know, you know, there's somebody. He belongs to our family. There's my brother or my sister. But I say it is a conundrum. And if you can explain it, please. Uh, do so tonight as you leave or before you leave or, or, or phone me. If you can explain how somebody can be saved for 25 years and have never attended a prayer meeting. And I fear that those who don't attend prayer meetings 
they never pray at home. Or if they do, it's very superficial. And it's a very shallow experience on their part. There's a battle in the heavens. And if you are not a praying man or a praying woman, I want to serve you notice. You're not going to make it. You are already defeated. And actually, you're helping to bring down the church. You're part of a weak chain of links that's going to make the church a pushover. When push comes to shove, and when the pressure is applied to God's people and God's church, you're already defeated, and you're going to be responsible for discouraging and indeed undermining a whole lot of other people. And you need to be asking yourself the question, and I don't want to discourage you by any, any, any manner or means. You need to ask yourself, am I really born again? Does the spirit that's crying out, Abba, Abba, which is Hebrew for Father, Abba, Father, you need to try and find out, is the Spirit of God really in me? Because if it is, there will be the spirit of prayer. The battle is raging in the heavenlies. Oh, hear me. And I want you to know that there's no battle that's ever won, ever fought and won in this church. There's no battle that's ever fought and won in your family. There's no battle that's ever fought and won in the kingdom of God. There's no battle ever fought and won in Northern Ireland or in the Irish Republic <coughs> among believers that are there, and there are many, or in the United Kingdom that is not first fought and won in heaven. And we tap into that warfare through intercession. Are you understanding what I am saying? Do I sound a little stern? It's not my wish to be that way, but I am in a, I am in a, a stern disposition as I speak with you. I want to pray for a moment, please. Gracious Father, you have sent me here to speak to your people. And I don't want to be speaking hot air. It's not an academic exercise. I've come here uh, to pursue. I've come to, to give your word to the people, and I pray for help, Lord. I pray for the unction of God. I pray for words of fire. I pray for the help of the Holy Ghost. Lord, Speak to the people. I believe that there are some of the most remarkable and some of the most unique and anointed intercessors in this house right here tonight. And I believe that there are others, Lord, that you want to enlist. Please, Lord, 
help me not to discourage them, but help me to speak the Word of God in such a manner that will inspire and that will indeed ignite and that will call forth their allegiance in a stronger and in a, a more firm manner for Jesus Christ and his cause at this time. If ever there was a time when we needed to play the man for the kingdom of God and to do our part, to feel our responsibility and to stand true even, even though it may uh, threaten our very lives or our very health, it's now. Please help us, Lord, to do our part with what there is of life that remains to us. I pray, Lord, for the unction of God just now as I speak your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there are two verses in the Bible, one in the New Testament and one in the Old. And I have in my mind a picture of neon lights, bright, flashing neon lights, when I come to think of those two texts. And I'm thinking of John 3 and 16, which is a very remarkable, renowned, a very wonderful, well-known, best-known text probably in the entire Bible, most certainly in the New Testament, John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not go to hell or should not perish, but have everlasting life. That text in the Bible is one of those neon flashing light texts, and it's for the lost, it's for the unconverted. It's for the unregenerate, those who have never been to Jesus, for the cleansing power to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is a marvelous gospel text that is as full of meat as an egg is. But only it's with the gospel. It's full of the gospel. Full of the cross and redemption. Full of the love of God and salvation. It's a whosoever will text, and it's a text that calls us and pleads with us and grips us. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, I want to invite you to come to know Jesus over this Harvest Thanksgiving Revival Emphasis weekend. You need Jesus. There's some here tonight, and you think you're saved. You think if you died tonight, you'd go straight to heaven, but you're not really the Lord's. You're not really through. You have not really got the assurance. You don't have the blood mark on your life. You have never passed that great change that we call conversion. You don't have the witness of the Spirit. You've got religion. You've got evangelical religion, but you're not born again. I urge you tonight on the strength of that powerful neon flashing light text, John 3.16. It's for the sinner. It's for you. And then the text in the Old Testament that's one of those neon flashing light texts is the one I've just finished reading in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 14. I did say it's probably well thumb-marked 
it's underlined and it is a portion of the Word of God that you have uh, read many, many, many times and you have prayed over it many, many times. I want to impress it upon you here tonight. It's important because it contains the keys and the cost of revival. And for the remainder of my time, I want to talk about that. I'd like to explain or share a few definitions of revival. I have shared one already. It's important that you understand what revival is. I read from Isaiah chapter 64, one of the most remarkable chapters in the Old Testament. And it's a prayer. And it's a prayer from one of the holiest men, the prophet Isaiah. And he said in that amazing passage, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And there was a deep brokenness and a deep repentance in his heart as he prayed for the nation. And he was pleading with God with great pathos and great uh, uh, earnestness for God to do something. For God to step in. Oh that thou wouldest rend the heavens. And come down. And I believe that's one of the great definitions. Of revival in the Bible. God coming down. I'm totally against the idea. Of. Gospel missions being called revivals. I understand where. Our friends in the United States are coming from when they come up with that term. We're going to have a revival. We cannot ever have a revival. We cannot plan a revival in that sense. We cannot draw up a program that has got the fingerprints of a man or a team, a committee, a church all over it. It's not like that. God alone is the author and he is the one who can bring about a gracious visitation of that nature. God coming down. A few other uh, brief definitions that I had in mind. Revival is a spiritual, it can be described as a spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening. People who've not thought and who are not thinking about God. People who have not been in church for many years. People who do not pray. People who don't feel the weight of their sins. They get a, a feeling uh, of, of God coming near to them. They, they hear the voice of God calling them to repent. They, they feel that they are lost and sinking down into a lost eternity. They realize that they're in danger. And if they don't do something quickly that they could lose their opportunity of ever finding salvation and peace with God. A spiritual awakening. I want to say to you tonight dear men and women we need a spiritual awakening in Northern Ireland. Men and women don't think about God anymore. Men and women don't care. They care more about football than Jesus Christ. That's why there's been more concern about opening the pubs and the clubs than the churches during recent weeks and indeed during this entire prolonged period of pandemic. They're more concerned about what happens 
in, 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 on the football pitch, what happens in the scheme of uh, uh, games and sports activities than what happens in church or in the realm of the things of God. People don't care about God. God does not come within their circle. And their circle is very broad, but God doesn't come within it. We need a spiritual awakening. And only God can bring that about. We can try. God's servants here tonight, and there are several preachers here tonight, capable and gifted individuals who have invested many years of their lives to the Lord, we would love to be able to bring about a spiritual awakening. Uh, but we can't, but I believe through prayer and through taking our place in this warfare of which I've been speaking just moments ago and wrestling with God and engaging the powers of darkness, God can do something. God can do something. God can use us uh, to, to release his power in that department of spiritual awakening. Another interesting definition uh, of revival, and there are many, many, um, the fire of God falling. And just the other day I read um, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and old, old Ahab was there, skeptical, and um, full of blasphemy, full of antagonism. He hated that man even more than he hated the devil. And uh, if he could have tramped him into powder, he would have done. He was there. And you can see the feverish activity of the false prophets, the prophets of the groves, and the, the prophets of Baal, 950 of them, cutting themselves and jumping on the sacrifice, their sacrifice, to try and call down fire. Because the test was the God that answers by fire. That was the true God. And they did that all day, or at least most of the day. But nothing happened. And when the man of God had actually uh, used words of disdain and ridicule and, and, and mocked the enemies of God, I want you to know that when you are in a position to mock what the enemies of God are doing, you've got a strong confidence in God. When you're strong enough to, to, to laugh, when the powers of darkness have encircled you all around, you're able to laugh and you're able to uh, shout victory and the joy of God and anticipate a great victory. I say you're, you are really, really, you've prayed through. And believe me, those three and a half years that Elijah was in hiding, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, making daisy chains, he wasn't, uh, uh, twiddling his thumbs and whiling away. The, he was in deep intercession for the nation, this apostate nation of Judah. He was wrestling with God. He was engaged in, 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 in battle and in raw uh, uh, engagements with the devil and the powers of darkness. Absolutely. He had all the praying done. That's why his prayer was so short on Mount Carmel. That's why he was so sure of victory. That's why he knew he, 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 could, he could laugh at the enemy and he could tell uh, people to bring four barrels of water and pour them on his sacrifice. Do it again and do it again. He'll fill even the trench with water. He was so sure he had prayed through. 
I want you to know when we pray through, when we touch heaven, when we get the witness of God, <clears throat> that God has come on the scene, the battle's over, the battle's won. And that is exactly, exactly how it was. It was his turn now. And with very little ado, with a very little pomp or show, he prepared the sacrifice. He placed all the pieces until the last piece, the last piece was placed on the altar. And then he prayed just a short prayer inviting God to come down. And just like that, the fire of God came down and consumed the altar, consumed the, the sacrifice, the stones, consumed the water and the dust. There must have been a huge um, crater left at the spot where the fire of God struck the earth. There were more demons there that day than blades of grass. But when the power of God showed up, I want to tell you that the powers of darkness that held the nation of, of Judah and, and Benjamin and uh, the, the southern kingdom, when God showed up, there was one of the most striking, one of the most significant and awesome victories that God ever uh, demonstrated through his people. Absolutely. Fire coming down. Our religion is a religion of fire. Our faith is one of Holy Ghost fire and God intervening. And God doing amazing and impossible things. That's my humble understanding of what's recorded in Scripture. And um, I believe it to be the case. God coming down. God Sending a spiritual awakening. The fire of God falling. And there's many others. But the one that I like best of all, and I have studied revival in some considerable depth, is the breath of God. Almost every day I pray the prayer of Edwin Hatch in one of his great, great hymns. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love the things that thou dost love and do the things that thou dost do. Almost every day I pray that prayer. Breathe on me. Remember in a garden called Eden, at the beginning of creation, God created a body out of clay, out of handfuls of dust. He created a beautiful man, probably looking as one would understand, a young man who was around the age of 25. He wasn't created a child or a mere teenager, he was a man in the, the, at the zenith of his powers, but he was lying there lifeless until the great Elohim decided to pour his life into that frame 
and God breathed on him. Something inside of the living God went inside of that being that was not yet a being inside that form of a man and in an instant he became somebody he became alive God imparted his own life into the man that became known as Adam and I believe that that can happen to the church remember how it was in the 37th chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel the valley that was full of dry bones they were very dry and they were very many and remember God told Ezekiel to prophesy onto the bones and he prophesied onto the bones they came together bone to his bone and they were clothed with sinews or muscle they were clothed with flesh and skin but it was at the end of all of that it was just a valley of corpses and that God told his servant to call upon the wind to blow that was representative of the breath of God the life of God and when the man of God prayed for life prayed for the wind breath the breath of God to inhabit those bodies they rose up a strong mighty marching army representing Israel being reborn or something like that my friends that is what revival is we need the breath of God your church and my church this church and every church around Dungannon and the Moy and Ben Burb and the Bush and Donnock Moor right here in the center of the province every church needs the breath of God in fact without the breath of God we are not the church if God does not inhabit us if God does not inhabit our praises, our worship, if God does not inhabit our prayers and our praying, if God does not happen, if God does not possess our preaching, there's nothing in it. There's no life. Men and women, we need the life of God in us. And when you get the life of God, when the breath of God is breathed on you, you can never be the same. Never the same. Oh, breath of God, breathe on your people in this house this evening. Oh, breath of God, come pity us in our simplicity. Pity us in our weakness, in our defeat. Pity us in our confusion. We're holding only lightly and loosely to the things of God. Our testimony is only being held by a thread. But there's a persecution that is coming. There is laws that are being promulgated as I talk to you here tonight. Can you imagine that the Bible would ever be banned in the United Kingdom? 
and such has been planned in Scotland to start with? Can you imagine that the gospel is being banned from our streets? Can you ever imagine that the time will come when you'll not be allowed to pray in a hospital at a sick bed or in a care home or to have a gospel mission outside your church? We've had it easy too long, but things are going to change. Things are going to change. And you will see it. Things are going to change. We have crossed a red line 18 months ago. We have crossed a red line. And something is going to happen. Something is already happening. And we're never going to go back to where we've come from. There's something happening. There's something in the air. And what is in the wind at Westminster and in Stormont is not of God. There are anti-Christ powers, anti-gospel powers, anti-Jesus and Christianity issues that are going to make life very, very difficult for all of us. And it's only the genuine Christian that's going to stand. That icy blast or that, that fiery blast, as it might be. And before some of us die, we'll be in prison, I fear. I'm sorry down there at the back about this box. It's only on now. Uh, I don't need it to speak, but you might need it for other purposes, and I apologize if I have disappointed you. <clears throat> the breath of God, oh, breath of life, come breathe within us. Breath of God. Let us feel it. Waft us here in this house this evening. If it happens, you'll feel it in the buyer. You'll feel it in the milking parlor and in the silo and the pig shed. You'll feel it on the side of the road and in the shop. As you do attend to your business in the marketplace, you'll feel it in the office. You'll want to get down on your knees beside the chair you've been sitting on and you'll want to weep and weep. <clears throat> I do believe. <clears throat> Let me say to you hurriedly as I move on. The most comprehensive prayer that you can ever pray is a prayer for revival. The most all-embracing prayer is to pray for what I've just been talking about because it'll touch every strand of society as we know it. Our schools and our colleges and universities, it'll touch our homes, it'll touch chapels, 
as well as churches. It'll touch people in the marketplace and people in those houses where legislation is um, discussed and promulgated. It'll touch every strand. My dear people tonight, I call upon you in Jesus' name to pray ceaselessly for revival because it will answer all the needs that we can ever comprehend. I want to say to you also that I believe there are straws in the wind. There are signs. Like I mentioned at the beginning, there's, there's signs in the mulberry trees. Remember, that was the sign that uh, uh, God gave David. It was time to go to battle. David said, show me, Lord. Will, will, I, will I attack from this, this angle? Or will I attack from another angle? God said, no, don't attack the way you did before. Come to this area where there's a lot of mulberry bushes. And when you hear a sound of a going in the mulberry tree, that's the time and that's the place. There's a sound in the mulberry trees, I believe. And what's that? There is a dissatisfaction being felt presently amongst God's people. I believe in this church, Pastor Bertie, there's a spirit of dissatisfaction. Not with you, not with the leadership, not with the way the meetings are being conducted. There is a dissatisfaction with the status quo. We're not happy with spiritual things in the church uh, uh, outside of here and in other places. And we're not even happy with not seeing more of God than what we do. There's dissatisfaction. And I want to say to you, that's something you must cultivate. That is something you must thank God for. Remember Jacob and his heart cry. When he wrestled with God at Jabbok, Peniel, he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. I will not let thee go. He was wrestling with the stranger. And the stranger was Jesus Christ. He was wrestling and he was struggling. I will not let thee go. I, I, I have things ahead of me. My, my, my brother Esau is coming and I'm afraid of him. He could kill me. I don't know what's going to happen. I need to meet with you. I need you to take a hold on me and to change things. I'm saying that when there's a dissatisfaction and a heart cry like that, I will not let thee go. And remember the man called Jabez, whom I love, whose prayer I pray, and I'm in Africa now for 16 years because I prayed his prayer. Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed. Oh, that you would enlarge my coast. That's what I prayed for months. I didn't realize it was going to take me to Africa and cause my coasts to be enlarged. Oh, that thou wouldest keep me from evil. Oh, that thine hand might be with me. He was crying for the power of God. He was crying, crying for a, a pure heart. He was crying for an enlarged ministry. Bless me indeed. 
He was hungry. He was dissatisfied. My dear people, we'll never get revival unless there's a bunch of us that are dissatisfied. You know, there's a whole lot of us satisfied with our paychecks and our work conditions and satisfied with our comfortable homes and our nice motor cars. The problem is we are too contented and too satisfied with life and the devil is running amok in the world in government and even in the church. He's running amok. He's, the devil's laughing at the church. That's why there's so much blasphemy and there's so many people spitting on Christians and Christianity all over the place. If you dare do that with or about Islam, they'd soon declare a jihad on you and they'd take your head off. And they'd do it in the street and it wouldn't matter if they went to prison for the rest of their lives. They're not afraid to die. They're not afraid of anything. But we are. We are afraid of losing our reputation. We're afraid of losing our self-respect. You will never get revival until you decide it doesn't matter about your self-respect. Oh, my dear people. Let me say to you here, we started our reading tonight and it said, if I shut up heaven. I want to inform you tonight, just in case you didn't know, heaven is shut up. That's why our prayer meetings are such a struggle. Now, the prayer meetings are a wonderful place. I've been saying that. And I'm advertising for Jesus for more people to get out, to get out, and to keep coming out. Even though you come late, even though it's, uh, there's snow and, and rain and storm, get to the prayer meeting. Get to the prayer meeting. Even though it means you're going to lose a portion of your income, get to the prayer meeting. I'm saying it's a struggle in the prayer meeting because of all these things that are going on. There is something happening, I am saying. And the reason why it's so tough in the prayer meeting is because the heavens are shut up at the moment. The reason why it's so difficult in your home at the moment, the reason why some of you You've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for loved ones. And actually, they're getting further away from God and they're going deeper into sin and they're becoming more rebellious and they're doing everything that you don't want them to do and that God doesn't want them to do. They're getting further away and you think there's, there's nothing in prayer and you're wasting your time. I am saying the heavens are shut up and there is a depression there is a, a spirit of discouragement and dejection and defeat on the church at the present time. And I've alluded to it before. I want you to know, and please take this on board and never forget it, the Holy Spirit is grieved with the church. The Holy Spirit is not pleased with His church anywhere. At the present time. You say that's a terrible thing. To say you've. You put a big blanket of discouragement over me. And you were talking about discouragement. Of different kinds earlier on. And you've added more to it. But it's the truth. If you will hear it. 
God is not pleased. God is sick. He's sick of his church. He said, I would that you were either cold or hot. He said, you're neither. You're neither one thing nor the other. He says, you're lukewarm. And because you're neither cold nor hot, he said, I will vomit you. Out of my mouth. What an indignity. If it's in the word of God, it's not wrong for me to bring it into the pulpit and to speak it out that way. God is sick of his church because his church is full of adulterers. Some who are committing physical adultery, fornication, abusing children, all that, and some of it, some people committing it spiritually. You're in love with football. You're in love with tennis. You're in love with Hollywood and the world's fashions. And you're in love with money. And you're in love with ambition and career. But please tell me, if you're in love with Jesus, I could really be bold and ask all those who are in love with Jesus to stand up. Those who are in love with... I'm not doing it, but I could. I say, Jesus is tired and he's sick. And those seven churches that are mentioned in the book of the Revelation, you do well to study them. And that takes us back to the first century, around about the time of the Apostle John, and he he died around about the end of the first century. So it's a long time ago. And Jesus wrote those letters. He wrote those letters to seven churches that were representative of others. And to one he said, you have left your first love. You were born in revival. You had Paul as your pastor. A wonderful book called By Your Name was written to you. And you were blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. But you have left your first love. He says, I have somewhat against you. God has somewhat against his church. That's why we need revival. That's why we need revival. Things are not right. And to another church, he said, you have a name to live, but you're dead. You're dead. And that could be said of many Christians. You have a name to live. You you see, you're a Christian, but you're dead. You don't pray. You don't read the Bible. You never talk to anybody about Jesus. You've never led a soul to Jesus and you've been converted for 40 years. You've never even tried to lead someone to Jesus. Please don't tell me that you're serious. How could you be? A name to live, they're dead. And then the church that is most like Christianity today, the church of the Laodiceans, I've mentioned it there a moment ago. They said, we're rich, we're increased with goods, and with need of nothing. That's the church of 2021, believe me. Rich and increased with goods. I could mention a whole list, a long list of very evangelical churches today, and you'll go to the church and you'll hear a good message. 
every Sunday, morning and evening. But they're rich. They're increased with goods. They've in need of nothing. And they enjoy preaching those messages. But they're not in love with Jesus. And some of them think they are the only church that have got the truth. They think they're the only church doing anything. They think everybody else is contaminated. They're worldly. We are the ones. We are the one. We are the people. We are God's elite. And if God is blessing anybody, He's going to bless us. That kind of arrogance has percolated throughout the whole church. And quite frankly, a lot of uh, committees and ministers, they think they own the church. They think, they, they think that um, they're the fathers and the mothers of the church and that they are the cream of what God is, is, is doing or going to do. My dear friends, the passage we read tonight has told us it's a little different, indeed a great deal different from that. I believe it. Prayer meetings are too tame and too lame. If you pray too earnestly, some people said, that's something wrong with that man. Why? He was even crying in the prayer meeting. If he wants to cry, why didn't he cry at home? And people have left prayer meetings. I'm telling you what I've heard and what I've experienced. Prayer meetings are too lame and too tame, I'm saying. We're not desperate enough. We're not bold enough. We're not earnest enough. And please don't misunderstand me now. I could be really run out of church tonight for saying this. I am the most compassionate guy that you'll find anywhere. I've been a pastor most of my life, and I'm still a pastor. I've never ceased to be a pastor. But I want to tell you that a lot of church prayer meetings, all they ever pray for is the sick, the aged, the infirm, the dying. Now, is that wrong? No, it's not. But 90% of what's prayed for, that's what it's about. We are dealing with the death department. We're dealing with those who, the families who have lost Loved ones, and you need to pray very much for those and support them. And we're praying for those who are about to die and praying for them to... Most of our time's taken up with small things. Those are not really small things. But I'm saying the world is going to hell. The world is almost on fire. And the devil is having a heyday. And we're not serious in the prayer meeting. We don't weep. We don't... Cry out to God. We don't get excited. We're not stirred. And our prayer is always the same old prayer. And I'm not saying you should change too much, but I'm saying, you know, when you get the freshness of the Holy Ghost and when you're praying in the Holy Ghost, you'll never pray two prayers the same. Never. We need to get an electric shock. We need to get a fire that Elijah called down from heaven. We need to set the church on fire. And before we can do that, we need to set ourselves on fire or allow God to do that. Men and women, 
Do I sound crazy? You say, of course you do. I'm trying to make a point. We need God. We need the breath of God. Let me tell you as I conclude, and I haven't even begun proper. In this text that I told you was one that has neon lights flashing. This is for the church. On the ninth day of October, in the year of our Lord, 2021, this is the key text for the church. And we should get our hands, and I hope yours are as big as mine, to get a hold on this text and to hold on to it and to tremble and to cry out to God with a broken, dissatisfied, desperate heart, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. God says, if my people... Now, I want to point out something, and it has gripped my heart all week, all week, all week, and from my waking moments this morning. This is God speaking. We read this verse, and we don't know who's speaking. We think maybe it's Moses. We think maybe, maybe it's, it's Isaiah. Who, 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 who's talking here in Second Chronicles 7 and 4? This is God speaking. And I want to point out also to you that this portion of Scripture, it was spoken at a high, high point in the history of the people of God. It was like a Pentecost season in the temple. Solomon had prayed a long and an amazing prayer. <coughs> there was nothing bad happen, happening. The, the temple was just opened, uh, consecrated. It was magnificent, and it was built to the glory of God, and everybody was excited. Everybody was singing and praising the Lord, and they were eating and rejoicing. It was a great festival. And at this high point, God intervened. And he's talking about when the church becomes apostate. The Lord knows his church too well. It's true the sky is full of Pentecosts, but it's not always or often even like that. There's time when things hit the bottom. And I've already been saying that's where we're at at the moment. We're at the bottom, at the bottom, at the bottom. And if we go much lower, it'll be through the bottom. But God is saying, I know there's coming a time when you will become apostate. You'll become backsliders. You'll get away from me. It'll not always be like this. It'll not always be wonderful like this. Blessed like this day. And he says, when it happens, I want to give you this secret. If my people, which are called by my name, remember God is speaking, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, 
Then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And I will forgive their sin. And I'm saying God is speaking that word to the church today, tonight. God is speaking. I really did not want to talk about or bring in such a familiar text. But I want to ask you a few questions. God is addressing his people here who are called by his name. I suppose most everybody here tonight is in that category. God's people. And it's God's people who need this. It's God's people who need to be revived. I say the best believer, the strongest believer, the one who's most in touch with God. In fact, I found over the years when I preach, my heart out and make an appeal, it's always the best Christians. When I'm preaching to Christians, and the same is true in Africa, it's always the best ones who come out to the front because they, have, they hear God speaking and they, they, they obey. They come out to weep. And some of them prostrate themselves on the floor. And there's no carpet on the floor. And after they leave, I can see on the dirty concrete, well, it's stained concrete, a, a pool of tears. And I can still see as I talk with you, I see bodies heaving, 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 groaning, groaning. You say things like that shouldn't happen in church. I say they should happen, and we are the way we are because those things are not happening. No tears. Oh, hear me tonight, dear people. Hear me, please. Please hear me. We have lost our ability to cry, to weep, to mourn, to grieve before God. We have lost the fear of God. Look at the way we talk about each other and behind each other's backs and behind the pastor's back. Look at how we talk. Look at how we talk about our families even. We have lost the fear of God. If the fear of God was on us, we would be afraid even to look on sin. Never mind touch it or fondle it. If the fear of God was on us, we would tremble. If the fear of God was on us, we'd be more serious about how we're living. We have lost not only the fear of God and the ability to weep, we've lost our conscience. There are Christians think, doing things today that they would never have dreamed of doing five or ten years ago. They're doing it quite freely without even the slightest twinge of conscience. Men and women, brothers and sisters, we're living in a wide Sodom and Gomorrah. The Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plains that were located near the Dead Sea in Israel, I am saying they have perished long time ago under the wrath and the terrible judgments of God in something that actually compared with a nuclear fallout or explosion, and, and the earth opened and those cities actually sank. They sank down into the earth and they were overcovered by the waters of the Dead Sea. That is where the part of the Dead Sea is nowadays. 
clearly. But I'm saying there is a new Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's worse than the last one. It's worse than the last one. It extends to Amsterdam. It extends to, 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 to New York. It, 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 it extends to San Francisco, to London. It, it extends to Beijing and to Nairobi and to Dublin and Belfast and London and Edinburgh. It, it is extended all over the earth. We're living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's millions of lots. And they're happy to have it so. They say the, the market. What about? It doesn't matter about the schools that our children attend. It doesn't matter about the churches. We have good markets in which to sell our goods. We fetch a better price than we used to get. We're living in a better house, driving a better motor car, getting better wages. What does it matter? Who our neighbor is? Or what our family become? There's many Christian families. You know what I'm talking about. Our families, we have family members, some of us here, that have turned into something we never imagined would happen. They're going about with their chest popped out. You dare speak about me. I'll have the police on your doorstep. I can do what I want. My dear brothers and sisters, a woman cannot do what she likes with that unborn baby in her belly without consequences. And you can't try to tamper with God's order <coughs> in regard to your sexuality or your sexual orientation without consequences. You cannot. You see the rules, <coughs> the regulations, and the laws of God in this book. We can't change them. We can try <coughs> governments can and there are legislating against them but I say there are consequences never mind the world the church is on a collision course with God guess who will win guess who will win you know fine well we've lost the presence of God I said earlier the Holy Ghost is grieved, men and women. We need to tread softly, softly. We need to tread very, very softly. We have grieved God. How can we get him back? How can we get him back into our families? How can we get him back into our prayer meetings? How can we get him back into our churches and into our businesses? How can we do it? Do we want him back? Did I not say at the beginning or a little while ago about the church at Laodicea, rich, increased with goods, need of nothing, and guess what? Guess what? Let me in! A voice calls from outside. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Let me into my house. We're having church without the Holy Ghost. We're having prayer meetings without the Holy Ghost. We're having our program Every Sunday, without the Holy Ghost, our program is more important than what's in the Bible. Billy Graham quoted, I don't know who said it, 
But he said, quoting another, if the Holy Ghost was removed from the church, 95% of everything that passes for biblical Christianity would go on, go on, go on as if nothing ever happened. And that's exactly what's happening. The Holy Ghost has taken his leave. We need to get him back. And when revival comes, we'll get him back. We'll get him back because we can't have revival without the Holy Ghost. Oh, my, my brothers and sisters, hear me. We have lost our Bible. There are a dozen Bibles at least in almost all of our homes. And some, there's more. And there's many of us with stacks of and we never read the Bible. Now, come on, be honest. We're not reading the Word of God. And that's why we've lost our way. And we have lost our morals. We're living in a, an age of drunken, alcoholic, wine-bibbing Christians. You say it's okay. I know how to conduct myself. Do you? Do you? What kind of testimony is that? We have Christians who smoke and drink alcohol, and we have Christians who gamble on the lottery, and we have Christians who are going to theaters and football on most ungodly places. And we have even Christians who visit brothels. We have Christians professing who tell lies and they have no conviction or qualms about behaving in a sexual immoral way or telling sexual orientated dirty jokes at weddings and at various other events. They laugh with the world. I say, my dear people, we have grieved the Holy Ghost and we need, we need to get back to God and we need to get God back to us. Here it is. The keys to revival. Haven't time to elaborate upon it. I've gone too long and you've been very, very patient. You'll be saying to Bertie, and I understand, I'm going to clear off in three weeks to Africa, so I'll give you peace for a long time. We're heading back to Africa on the 2nd of uh, November, and we beg and plead for your prayers. Please, we've been looking forward to and longing for this day to come, like our brother David down in the meeting here, whom I'm so glad to see with Wilma. They're longing to go back to uh, Thessalonica and to Greece uh, to serve God there, and they're going before us, actually, clearly. But I want to say to you, there's a call to attention here, and there's a call to brokenness. Humble yourself. Brokenness. Would you ever think of breaking your heart at the foot of the cross? I want to tell you something. It's the key. Remember the two men that came into the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee and the other was a publican. And the, the Pharisee was strutting around... <clears throat> enjoying the sway of his expensive 
garments, religious garments, and he was telling the Lord all about himself. Do you think the Lord doesn't already know all about you and the hypocrite that you are, if that's what you are? And then there was the guy at the back, and he was saying, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing in God's house? I'm not worthy to be here. And he was beating his breast like this. And he was saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. He was broken. Broken. And my friend, we'll never get revival unless we humble ourselves. Remember Naaman? He had to be humbled. He had to be broken before he could be healed. Remember that? He wanted to be free from leprosy and he was told to go and dip himself seven times in the river. Dirty old river, stinking. I'm not going to do anything like that. But I want to tell you, God will ask you to do something hard, something distasteful. You'd better do it. If you want to be cured from your leprosy, and I tell you the church is full of leprosy of a different kind, we need to be healed. And to be healed, we need to be humbled and broken at the foot of the cross. There's no shortcuts. And there's a call to prayer. I've talked about prayer a lot. Must seek God's face. We talk about prayer. We read books about prayer. We love to hear sermons about prayers. But we don't pray. We don't pray. And I've told you what I think about prayer. Our prayers are not deep enough. Our prayers are not desperate enough. Our prayers don't shake heaven. They don't shake ourselves. Our prayers need to shake ourselves until our hearts are broken and we know it and it'll take us a long time to get over it. God, be merciful to me and do something for me. Bless me indeed. And then he says, we need to seek his face. That's a deeper level of prayer. That's the level of determination and perseverance that I call desperation. God will not meet with you unless you're desperate. Remember that lady that touched the hem of Jesus' clothes? Remember her? She was very sick. She had spent all her money. She had no more money to go to doctors. She was desperate. She could hardly stand up. And she sneaked in the crowd and she reached out and touched, touched the hem of his garment. She was desperate, desperate, desperate. And God did something. Jesus said, who touched me? Because virtue has gone out of me. When you touch God, you'll know about it. You'll know about it. There's a call to repentance here. Turning from our evil ways. I say tonight in this dignified congregation, men and women, brothers and sisters, Are there any evil ways in your life, in your family? Any evil ways in your marriage? Any evil ways in your business? Remember, 99.9% honesty, it's not acceptable. It's not enough. 99.9% genuineness is not enough. God wants us to be 100% out and over the line for him. Repentance. We need to turn away with broken hearts from sin and everything we know to be wrong. And God says if we do that, brokenness, 
prayer and deeper prayer to the point of desperation. Repentance, deep repentance. You know, there is a very real sense in which there should be deep repentance in our hearts all of our Christian lives. All of our Christian lives. We should never forget what God has done and what he has forgiven. I read just the other day, talking about repentance, that old Ahab, that old wart, a desperately wicked king married to an even more terrible wicked wife, Jezebel, that there came a time in his life and God told him he was going to judge him and judge his family. And Ahab took it to heart and he trembled and he put on sackcloth and he lay on the cold floor and wept before God and God changed his mind. God changed his mind. God mitigated. God, he, he, he reduced the terribleness of judgment that he had spoken out over this man when he saw the likes of Ahab and the Lord said, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had repented, he said, if they had repented, I'd have forgiven them. There's something about repentance. There's something about repentance, a deep repentance. And God will do things for us when we repent deeply. And he would never, never do under any other circumstances. He says, I will hear from heaven. I will hear from heaven. God's listening. God's listening. He's waiting to hear you say, I'm sorry. I apologize. I have been a mean Christian. I've been bad to my employees. I've been bad to my wife. I've been bad to my husband. I haven't treated my children right. I haven't supported the church. I haven't been honest. I haven't done my part. God's waiting to hear. He says, I'll hear from heaven. And he says, I'll forgive. God's waiting to forgive his church. He's waiting to forgive you and I. And he says, I will heal. I will heal the land. And I've said at the beginning, I said, Northern Ireland needs healing. Needs healing. 2,000 children unborn in the last two years have been murdered. Does that not need forgiving? The cry of innocent blood along with Abel's, Abel's crying from the ground. And I say, if, if, if these abortion laws are passed, in a few years there'll be 100,000 silent voices crying from the graves and from the incinerators, crying for, judges, crying for justice, crying to God to remember who did this to us. Our land needs healing. Our land needs healing. Broken families, broken homes need healing. And the, the terror, the pain of 40 years of civil war that was never even called that, we need healing, healing. And what has been happening in our land, I'm saying over hundreds of years, there needs to be a deep healing, a deep healing. God can heal our fields and our farms and our businesses. He can heal our families. 
and he can do something for us that we've never, never imagined possible. Revival God coming down, the fire of God falling on his church, God breathing on his people. Lord, do it tonight. Do it tonight. Strike a spark in some life down this right-hand side of the church or down this left-hand side or over here. Lord, strike, strike a match of the Holy Ghost and do something for us so we'll never be the same again. I want to ask a question before I pray and I want a response. How many here this evening are willing to pay the price for what I have tried feverishly hard to speak about and to share with you this evening? How many here are willing to pay the price for revival? Would you like to stand? And don't just stand. I'd rather nobody stood if you don't mean it. How many are willing to pay the price? I've talked about the cost and the keys of revival, the cost and the key. How many are willing to pay the price? Brokenness? Prayer, deep, deep prayer. Repentance. How many are willing to do that? Desperation. How many are willing to pay the price? Would you stand?